Uh, Aussies don't generally like boasters, big noters, show-offs who hoon around the streets in their fast cars. Uh, there was an ad a few years ago that said, wiggle your finger at them, like that, just to show them we didn't think they were very big at all. Or the man of the match in a football game is interviewed and the reporter talks about what an amazing game this one player played. And the standard way of dealing with that, if you're an Aussie, is, is you just sort of bat it back or you let it through to the keeper and you, you talk about how well the team played. Everyone played really well, the man of the match will say. Everyone gave 110%. Uh, it was a team effort, they say, even though everyone knows it was pretty much a one-man one show. The Aussie way is not to stick your head above the crowd, not to big-note yourself, not to boast. Uh, because when you do, Aussies love to take people like that down a peg or two. We don't like boasters. Our national pastime is cutting down tall poppies. It seems to be the opposite of being humble to boast. It seems to be the opposite of being a good Aussie bloke. And yet the funny thing is, in this passage today, Paul is doing some boasting. Three times in 11 verses, he boasts. But you probably won't notice it straight away because there's such a negative connotation to the idea of boasting that nearly every modern translation uses rejoice instead. Uh, can you see it now? Have a look for the word rejoice. It's the end of verse 2. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3. Not only so, we boast in our sufferings. And then finally down in verse 11, not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, rejoice is not a bad translation. There's certainly reason for us to rejoice. There's fantastic reasons to rejoice in this passage. But I think it loses some of the sting Paul means it to carry. Let me show you why. Remember where we've been the last four chapters of Romans. Uh, Paul's been taking down the Jews who think they can be right with God simply because they have the law. I got this big Bible, that makes me right with God. Or they say, God's made a covenant with our nation and we've got circumcision as a sign of that. Uh, we'll be right. They're proud of it, they're even boasting. But Paul has shown in the last four chapters no one can be right with God by doing or by keeping or by obeying or simply by having. No one can do any of that perfectly. Instead, it's got to happen simply by trusting God. And so at the end of chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 27, he comes to the conclusion by asking this question. Where then is boasting? Where then is boasting? 3.27, it's excluded. There is no boasting. Uh, that's been the argument so far. Now, this is not just a problem for the Jews of Paul's time who were sitting in the Roman church. Israel has had a long history of the, exactly the same problem, of human pride, of people trusting in their religion instead of their relationship with God, of trusting themselves rather than God. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah, about 600 BC, he had plenty to say to a boasting people. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 3, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions and I'll let you live in this place. 
Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, then I will let you live in this place. (laughs) They think because they've got the temple that they're making sacrifices, then that gives them licence to sin any way they like. But God is saying, don't trust in deceptive words like that, in boastful words. The next chapter, Jeremiah chapter 8, there's more boasting. God says, how can you say, we are wise for we have the law of the Lord, when actually the lying pen of the scribes has handled it falsely. This time that Jeremiah is rebuking them for boasting in the law. They've got it, but they're not keeping it. And so we come to Jeremiah chapter 9. God warns, judgment is coming. And then down in verse 23, we see his lesson from the whole warning. Jeremiah 9 verse 23. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight. Jeremiah 9, 23-24. Boasting in your own strength, Your own cleverness gets you nowhere except to judgment. But actually there is a boasting that God delights in, says Jeremiah. God wants us to be boastful. (laughs) The person who boasts that he knows and understands and trusts the God who forgives his sin. It's not boasting in self, it's boasting in the blessings that someone else has given. Well, that was Jeremiah. Jump forward to the church in Rome, AD 57, different age, different place, same problem. Flip back a page, Romans chapter 2, verse 17. Paul's talking to the Jews and he says, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag, it's actually boast, if you boast about your relationship to God, If you know his will and approve of what's superior because you're instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, that's what they were boasting about. All the wonderful advantages of having the law. So what's the problem? Well, just like Jeremiah's time, they're not keeping the law. Verse 21, Paul says of Romans 2, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And so on. And then in verse 23, You who brag, that's boasting, it's the same word, you who boast about the law, do you dishonour God by breaking the law? There's actually nothing for you to boast about, says Paul. You're boasting about the law, but there's no reason for you to boast. It's not making one scrap of practical difference to your life. The Jews are in exactly the same position as the Gentiles. They're no better off because they have the law. They're guilty, helpless, dead, 
headed for judgment, nothing to boast about. And so we come to chapter 5, where Paul is going to outline something that is worth boasting about. He's undercut all human foundations for pride, for religious pride, and replaced it instead with grace. And now he's going to spell out how that should lead to an attitude for the Christian of boasting in God and what he's done. Boasting about yourself, just your divides, Jew and Gentile, better, worse. But boasting about God is what will unite people, unite them behind a message that Paul wants to take to Spain. He wants the church to be united in the missionary endeavour that he's got. Chapters 1 to 3, he describes the need to be justified, Jew and Gentile alike. Chapters 3 and 4, he's shown the way to be justified through faith in Christ. Now chapter 5, he gets to the blessings of being justified. What's so good about being put right with God? What's worth boasting about? So we find a number of things that are worth boasting about. First thing, we have peace with God. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If your sin has been dealt with, if God has declared you forgiven and righteous, then there's no longer any barrier. There's no barrier between you and God. There's nothing in the way. God has dealt with something in the past which has practical implications for you today, right now, in the present. Peace with God. It's not just a declaration, it's a a state of being. You are in that right now if you belong to Christ. That makes a difference. There's peace where there used to be enmity. There's access to God where there used to be distance. There's approval where there used to be rejection. There's intimacy where there used to be alienation. There's friendship between those who used to be strangers. That's right now because of what God's done in the past. It's the position King David was describing back in chapter 4 when he said, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. How good it is to know that your failure, your mistake, your sin, it's never going to be dredged up again. It's gone, it's forgotten, it's wiped clean. It's the difference between walking around your house after you've had an argument that's unresolved with your spouse or your flatmate compared to when you've actually sat down, you've apologised or they've apologised and you've forgiven them and you've made up and it's restored. That's what we have now. Peace with God. Gone, forgotten, wiped clean. It's a joy that's even greater when you know you don't deserve it. In a sense, when you're back together and you think, oh, well, I'm a pretty good guy. You know, I I didn't actually do that bad or I, I said sorry even though I don't think it was really mostly my fault. Yeah, it's good to be restored and at peace again. But when you know you don't deserve it, that joy's even greater, isn't it, to be at peace? Well, that's the first thing to rejoice in, to boast in. 
Uh, The second blessing is that it's all by grace. We're standing in grace, verse 2. Through Jesus Christ we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. When God declares us righteous, he introduces us to the realm of grace. He opens the door to the throne room of grace. An open door to the King of Heaven, we get an all all areas access pass. And once we come in, we stand in grace. We're established in it, solid, sure and certain. Why can we stand in grace? Because it doesn't depend on our work. It doesn't depend on our performance. It's by faith in what Jesus has performed. That's why we can stand in the grace. There's no uncertainty. There's no grovelling on hands and knees. There's no hoping you've caught the king in a good mood today. There's no nervously going through life, looking over your shoulder, waiting for God to realise he's made a mistake and let the wrong person in. There's no desperately thinking back over our actions at the end of the day, wondering whether we've done enough to survive the night. That's not standing in grace, is it? When Billy Graham, the American evangelist, was in Sydney, uh, he was interviewed by Mike Willisey. So I think this was back in 76, 77, 79. Um, And after a couple of introductory questions, um, Mike Willisey asked him, Dr Graham, do you think you'll be going to heaven? And his answer caused quite a media storm at the time. His response was, I don't just think I'm going to heaven, Mike. I know I'm going to heaven. And it's not because I'm Billy Graham and I've preached to a few people in my time and it's not because I'm a good man. God knows I'm a sinner. The point is I know what my future holds because I'm trusting Jesus and he promised it for me and anyone else who trusts him. That's standing in the grace that he's been introduced to. It's a blessing that's worth boasting about. But at the time, he was ridiculed by people as how presumptuous, you know, how boastful that you think you've got, you're better than the rest of us. It's a blessing worth boasting about. We're standing in the grace we've been introduced to. Well, the next blessing's at the end of verse 2. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But remember, it's not just rejoice, it's boast. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. When you become a Christian, God doesn't promise all your problems will be automatically fixed. In fact, life will often get more difficult. But one thing we can be sure of, God has promised us glory, future glory. Now, it's seeing and experiencing his glory, seeing and experiencing the the glorious new heavens and the new earth for all eternity. But God also promises us glorious resurrected bodies, glorious resurrected characters, experiencing the glory of no pain or crying or sickness or mourning or sin, the glory of perfect intimacy and peace and fulfilment, the glory of a perfected character. 
character that's just like Jesus, character that's been purified and disciplined in this life through the persecutions and difficulties. And that's why Paul goes on to describe another thing that he's boasting in. The Christian can boast in the face of sufferings. Verse 3, not only so, but we also boast, rejoice, in our sufferings. Why would you boast in sufferings? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. The Christian can even boast in the sufferings he's going through because God has brought those things to produce in the Christian perseverance and character and hope, to mould her character more and more into the likeness of Jesus, into someone made in the image of God herself. Sufferings that will make you fit for your glorious resurrected body. Your character will be like the glorious body you're resurrected with. That will make you fit for the glorious new heavens and new earth. That's the hope we're to keep our eyes fixed on as we're going through these sufferings. That's how we're actually able to boast in them. When you're suffering, take that long-term view. God is at work on your character. Jesus is being formed in you more each day. So don't grumble, don't get angry, don't get impatient. Boast. Pray for the eyes of faith to, God, uh, to see that God is at work in you. But he's not just at work in you as you're suffering. Have a look across at the, along the pew, look along the pew, turn around and have a look at the people around you. God's at work in them as well through suffering. Have a think about what you know of the lives of people around you. God is at work in them through their suffering. You can see that process in them. If you can see that process in them, tell them. Encourage them. And say, you know what, I can see you really encourage me the way you persevere through what you're going through, the way you've still got a smile on your face. Thank you for turning up to church when I know how hard it is for you to get here. God is at work in you. That might help them to be able to boast in their sufferings too. But it's not all just future promises while we suffer. God gives us a taste in the present, an experience of himself. Have a look at verse 5. This is the fourth blessing that we can boast in. He's talked about uh, hope and then in verse 5 he says, Hope doesn't disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. God brings the suffering to strengthen us, to, to strengthen our hope, but he also gives us his spirit to make our hope more sure, to make our hope more dependable. The experience of the Christian life may be suffering, it may be persecution or sickness or testing, but at the same time, for a genuine Christian, there is also another experience, an experience that God loves us despite our sin, despite our suffering, an experience of God's love. 
At times that feeling will be stronger than at other times and at times you won't feel like God doesn't love you but that doesn't mean he doesn't. But if you're a genuine Christian there will be times when you experience it, when you can feel the love that God has for you. Has there been a moment for you when it just hits you? It actually is a little bit like being poured on you if you've ever felt it like that. It's not like something you read, it's something that just sort of falls on you. I think God pours his love onto us is a lovely way to understand that or or to describe it. For me, sometimes it's uh, a word in a song. Often it's a verse or a line in a song. It's often when there's music connected to it, uh, less so when I'm just reading it. Sometimes it's when someone's up here praying and just their way of putting something, it'll just hit me. Sometimes it's hearing a sermon. When was the last time it just struck you that God loves you? Undeserving, sinful as you are. That comes by God's spirit. It comes from God's spirit. A genuine experience of the gracious, undeserved love of the holy, powerful King of the universe comes from his Holy Spirit. His love is poured like rain, like a rainstorm flooding a dusty, dry desert. Marjorie's gone out to Lake Eyre. She's gone on a bus trip out there and apparently it's, it's blooming, it's blossoming, there's water. Uh, God's love is like that. Sometimes what it feels like, I think, being swept away, overwhelmed, uh, the grace that he gives us. And it's that experience that helps make our hope more certain. But it's not just a feeling. Uh, as Maddie talked about in her kids' talk, God doesn't just give us a feeling, he gives us a practical demonstration. That's the fifth blessing of being justified. We can boast in the cross, God's love demonstrated. Now, the cross does lots of things. Romans gives us a fairly long list of what the cross cross achieves. But one thing the cross does is demonstrate how much God loves us. Verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. The point is not that the cross is the most terrible way of dying and that's how much God loves us. That's not the point. The point is that he did it at just the right time to display his love. When we were powerless, when we were enemies... Paul says it's almost possible to imagine someone who might die for someone who loves them, for someone who deserves a sacrificial act, or maybe for a particularly righteous person, you know, someone who is a a famous surgeon who saves lives every day and deserves someone to die for them, or maybe a good person. I wonder here if he's not thinking about a benefactor, someone you're indebted to, someone you owe a favour to. It's almost possible you could understand someone sacrificing them, 
their lives for someone like that. But it's another thing entirely to die for someone who hates you. Now that's love. Someone who hates you. The Cricket World Cup's on at the moment. It's just started. Probably doesn't interest many of you. Uh, but in cricket, the best time to demonstrate your character is, the, is when the pressure is on. Uh, scoring a century when your team is 7 for 25 and the ball is swinging, that's just the right time to score a century. That's just the right time to prove your character, to show what sort of player you really are. They talk about soft centuries and hard centuries. Like a soft century, that's one where your team is 3 for 500 and the opposition's running around in 45 degree heat and it's pretty easy to score in, in that sort of situation. But you demonstrate your character when you score a hard century. Well, here, Christ dying when we were sinners demonstrates the Father's love. That's just the right time when we're sinners. It's the proof, the historical proof of the cross as the evidence in the past that assures us that God loves us in the present, which gives us the confident hope for the future. The cross in the past assures us of God's love in the present, which gives us confident hope for the future. Reasons to boast. But it's not just a glorious future of eternity, of a new body and a new heaven and new earth. Uh, there's also salvation from judgment. That's what he moves on to in verse 5. God has already done the difficult thing and so we can be 100% sure he'll do the easier thing. That's the logic of what he says from verse 9. Have a read of it with me. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Can you see the logic? The, the cross is evidence that God has he's already done the difficult thing, the incredibly difficult thing. We were enemies, but he made us friends. That's inconceivable. And so now that we're friends... It's a relatively easy thing for him to save friends. We're standing in grace. We can have a solid confidence that we will be saved from judgment because he's already done the hard thing. When it comes to judgment day and we're called to give an account of our life, God will say to those who belong to him, my children, my friends, step this way. When I look at you, I can see Jesus' righteousness. Come into the party. Come to the front of the queue. Your name's on the invitation list. That's something worth boasting about. That's how Paul finishes this section. Verse 11, not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God. There it is again. We boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. Being made right with God, being justified, has so many blessings that flow from it that you just want to brag about it. You just want to boast in it. 
brag about God because he is so good and because you're not. It's the sort of boasting that a bushwalker might do when he stumbles across an incredible view. He's arrived at just the right time, the sun's in just the right place, he's perched on just the right rock to see the waterfall or the eagle or the sunset. He can't believe his good fortune. He takes the photos, he posts them on Instagram and he tells everybody he sees. That's the sort of boasting we're talking about here. It's got nothing to do with you. It's got everything to do with where you're standing. It's got nothing to do with you. It's got everything to do with where you're standing. That's what we should be boasting about. We should be defending and enjoying. Our enthusiasm should be contagious. We should be as evangelistic about the place we stand in as that bushwalker is. We're standing in grace by faith. God delights in people who boast like that. Let me close with these words from Jeremiah. He delights in people who delight in him. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man of his strength or the rich man of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness justice and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight. May that be our boast. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to boast in you. Help us to recognise our sin. Keep us from pride in ourselves. But may we see all that flows from you putting us right through Jesus, by, uh, by Jesus, through our faith. Uh, may we live that out and experience all that you have for us and help us uh, to do that for your honour and glory. Amen.